Scott here with another edition of the History Unplugged podcast. In today's episode, we're going to look at what it took to be a part of the abolitionist movement. We're going to zero in on a notable example, and that's George Richardson, who lived from 1824 to 1911. He was a traveling Methodist preacher who rode on a circuit across the antebellum Midwestern frontier and became increasingly caught up in the abolitionist movement. He was a station master on the Underground Railroad and opened his home to escape slaves. Later, he served as a chaplain to a black regiment during the Civil War. The soldiers under his care were survivors of the Fort Pillow Massacre, in which the Confederates refused to take black soldiers as prisoners of war and unlawfully executed them instead. In the 1870s, he founded a college in Texas for the formerly enslaved. When the Ku Klux Klan burned the school down, he built another one, and later on finding that many students couldn't attend because they didn't have the means to travel to the city, rode on a circuit to teach those who were confined to their farms, much as he did as a Methodist preacher. Today's guest is James Richardson, an ancestor of George, and also a retired journalist and Episcopalian priest. He retraced the steps of George across nine states, uncovering letters, diaries, and more memoirs hidden away. He's the author of the new book, The Abolitionist Journal, Memoirs of an American Anti-Slavery Family. We discuss what motivated George to become an abolitionist, the personal and financial challenges this choice brought on him and his family, and the incredible hardship that the formerly enslaved faced when they tried to build lives for themselves after emancipation, when they had nothing, or, thanks to the loan-sharky nature of sharecropping, less than nothing. Hope you enjoyed this discussion with James Richardson. And one more thing before we get started with this episode, a quick break for a word from our sponsors. This is Organized Crime and Punishment. History and crime like you've never heard it. Joy and Mustache Chris, Steve, and their crew as they take deep dives into the fascinating stories of the Mafia. Find Organized Crime and Punishment at the website, organizedcrimeandpunishment.com, and everywhere else you find great podcasts. Make sure you tell your friends about Organized Crime and Punishment so that friends of yours can become friends of ours. Forget about it. Let's begin with George's story when he immigrates to the upper Midwest territories and becomes a circuit riding itinerant Methodist preacher on the frontier. Tell me about his story in particular and this profession in general, because the work of Methodist preachers writing on a circuit is an important part of understanding the settlement of the Midwest in this time period in the 19th century. Well, first, it's important to know that both George Richardson, who is my great-great-grandfather, and his wife-to-be, Carolyn they both grew up in upstate New York, which in the first half of the 20th century was kind of the locus of the Second Great Awakening. It was sometimes known as the burned over district because of the hellfire and brimstone preaching. So they were steeped in that. They were steeped in the Free Will Baptist Church, which happened to also be ardently anti slavery. So they grew up in households that were intensely Christian, intensely evangelical, and intensely anti-slavery. Carolyn Fay and her family moved to Wisconsin, and meanwhile, George Richardson lost an arm, his right forearm, in a farming accident in New York. So 
he ended up moving to Wisconsin and joining the Methodists. He wrote in his journal that he joined the Methodists because he felt their theology was closer to his, but Carolyn was a Methodist at that point. So you kind of think that had a big part of why he joined the Methodists. But he was a gifted preacher. He was recruited into becoming a licensed preacher by Chauncey Hobart, who a name kind of lost to time these days. But Chauncey Hobart was this enormous figure in establishing Methodism in Wisconsin, Upper Illinois, and Minnesota. And the way the Methodists worked is they would go from town to town starting what they called classes. And they were they put together groups of people who they wanted to convert to Christianity, to a Methodist Christianity. They'd meet in saloons and hotel rooms. Wherever they could find a roof, they would meet. They didn't need a church building to do this. And the itinerant Methodist preachers would just ride a circuit in a territory day by day, week by week, meeting with the classes, conducting worship and preaching. And so that's what George did. Chauncey Hobart was also a intensely abolitionist in the uh, sort of the upper echelons of the Methodist Church. Hobart would go to the periodic national conferences of the Methodist Church and introduce resolutions to excommunicate any Methodist preacher who owned slaves that in the 1840s. So I think it's important to understand both the texture of the Northern anti-slavery Methodists and also how they spread the word throughout the upper Midwest. Broadly speaking, how do he and Caroline get active in the abolitionist movement? Well, they grew up in it. At one point, they were in Galena, Illinois, which in the 1850s was larger than Chicago, and it was an important port town on the Mississippi River. And it was a place of pro-union and anti-slavery folks. And how they got hooked into the Underground Railroad, they never said. They, George, in, in his writing, actually kept he explained in some detail getting a helping an enslaved woman get away, but he never exactly says where and how and who brought him. Well he, well, he does say who brought her to their house, but how they got hooked into this, they never really say. But it was just part of their upbringing and part of their faith uh, to do this kind of work. Can you walk me through how they use their home as part of the Underground Railroad? Because if some people think about it, they imagine there are all these you know, trapdoors or things like that to hide people from authorities or slave catchers or others, but different underground railroad houses, some might not have anything particular about them. They're just simply part of the route that people would use to escape to free states. How did they set up their house and how were they involved in the underground railroad? Well, they mentioned well, he mentioned that the justice of the peace, you know, the local judge, <laughs> knocked on his door one evening and had with him a escaped slave and a woman named Kitty and a middle-aged woman. And the Richardsons were ready to go. They took her in. They hid her in an upstairs bedroom in a loft and kept her there 
while the slave catchers were going around town. Because he was a Methodist preacher, he felt he was a bit above suspicion and they weren't going to advertise that they had her. It's also curious to me, their next door neighbor was John Rawlins, who later became a Union general and was the closest confidant to Ulysses Grant. Galena was also Grant's town. So the impression is that they had some political protection. You know, the local judge dropped off this kitty, the enslaved woman. The next door neighbors, John Rollins, you know, this is clearly a very organized effort and they had some protections. So eventually, though, they needed to get her to the next place. And so they dressed her as a man and George just walked out the house with her one evening and down a few streets, and he never says which streets. Uh, we tried to figure it out when we were in Galena, but it was clear there's no easy way out of town without being seen. But they just walked down a few blocks and met a carriage and put her in, and off she went to wherever the next station was. The next big chapter in his life is when he serves as a chaplain during the Civil War. But in these decades leading up to it, can you tell me about what he continues to do as a pastor, as a circuit writer, as a member of the abolitionist movement. What did these next few decades look like? Well, first, he was riding a circuit. They left Galena, and he and Chauncey Hobart recruited him back into a, a Wisconsin and Minnesota circuit. So he would ride the circuit. They had more children. He was gone a lot. And typically, Methodist preachers would be moved to a new circuit every two to three years at most. So they moved a lot around. Caroline would raise the children. George would be home whenever he was home. And meanwhile, the United States is erupting in this, in what's going to become the Civil War. He and Chauncey Hobart went off to one of these Methodist conventions called conferences and had you know, promoted more resolutions to excommunicate Methodists who had slaves. And it was basically splitting the Methodist church between Northern and Southern. And this is paralleled in basically every Protestant denomination in America. The same kind of thing is going on. But anyway, the Civil War erupts. People in his congregations are leaving to go off to the war. He is more and more feeling a bit useless and wondering what's the point here. And as he describes in his journal, you know, his temper against slavery and slave owners and those who were seceding just became kind of a white hot anger inside him. Meanwhile, Chauncey Hobart went off to be a Union chaplain and was at the Battle of Shiloh and came back to Minnesota and then recruited George and a couple of other Methodist pastors to go down to Tennessee. And they got a commission from an organization that was bringing medical supplies to the front. And so they went off to Murfreesboro, which is near Nashville, just after a major battle. And they were bringing these medical supplies. And George was just awestruck seeing escaped slaves coming across 
the battle lines and enlisting in the Union Army. He was just kind of blown away by that. And so he <laughs> found a way to, he said, I want to be their chaplain. So he found a way to get his name in for that. Those positions, first of all, the then called colored red Union regiments, the all-black regiments, had to be officered by white officers. And that included the the chaplains. And they were sought after positions for lots of reasons, but they attracted white abolitionists. You know, you saw the movie Glory about the 54th Massachusetts. There were many of these regiments in, on every front. So he put his name in for that, but he was missing an arm. And so he wondered, you know, how am I going to get in? You know, he never really exactly says how he got in, but keep in mind all those Galena connections. Rollins, he knew Elihu Washburn, who was in Congress. He had some connections. So he got it, you know, he was accepted into a black Union regiment posted in Memphis. And he got there soon after the Fort Pillow massacre. And he served a regiment that was really the remnant of the survivors of that. Fort Pillow was up the Mississippi River north of Memphis. It was a kind of a backwater fort. It was garrisoned by black troops. It was of no particular strategic importance at that in 1864 because the Union Army had was well into invading into Mississippi. But Nathan Bedford Forrest circled back around the Union, you know, the main Union contingent and raided the fort, capturing these black Union soldiers and proceeding to execute them. It was considered the worst war crime of the Civil War. Those who got away ended up back in Memphis, and then that unit was reformed as the 7th U.S. Heavy Colored Artillery Regiment, and that's the unit that George was assigned to. That's amazing that he's a chaplain to troops that must have been incredibly dispirited, but at the same time brave because they know when they're fighting that they're not going to get the same treatment as white soldiers. They're going to be executed. This is the position of the Confederacy because black troops are treated essentially as runaway slaves. Tell me about his wartime experience. What was that like? Well, what's interesting is we found some letters that he wrote from during the Civil War from Fort Pickering. And they are filled with his descriptions of black Union soldiers filled with wanting revenge on Nathan Bedford Forrest. You know, they are, I'm sure they're afraid of being executed, but all it did was motivate them to go after Confederates. And uh, they wore headbands emblazoned with Remember Fort Pillow, a flag from Fort Pillow that had been used to address the wounds of the commander of Fort Pillow who died. They got that flag and raised the, you know, kept that flag, that the bloody flag, as they called it. So these were very motivated troops. And they went off on raids into Mississippi looking for Bedford Forest. They never found him, but they got into lots of skirmishes and you know, they were in, in upper Mississippi. And George, as the chaplain, First, they left him behind, which just kind of drove him nuts. And so he managed to find a way to get to the front with them and ended up going back and forth into Mississippi and bringing back some wounded 
officers primarily, but he wanted to be at the front. And there's a wonderful description he wrote about being in Mississippi the night before a skirmish. And as the men are settling down for the night, you know, they're camping outside, he can hear them all praying out loud. And it just filled him with awe. And he wrote, surely the Lord is in this place. I mean, that's just one of the most moving moments he had. And then they went off to the next morning raid a Confederate bridge. And he also realized, you know, many of these men are going to die the next morning. And it just it filled him with awe. He was also in Memphis in the fort when Bedford Forrest raided Memphis. The, you know, the Confederates called it the Second Battle of Memphis. It wasn't really a battle. It was Forrest's attempt to try to capture the Union general and you know, General Washburn in Memphis who escaped running down an alley and into the fort. But George, you know, they were bringing in wounded Union and Confederate soldiers into the fort from the raid, and he was tending to them as well. And, you know, there's some ugly passages in there. He's pretty angry at the Confederates and trying to minister to a wounded Confederate who died. And, you know, he said he just had no regrets at the guy dying. But it also troubled him that, you know, he was beginning to feel that, that kind of hatred in the middle of a war. And he's a Methodist pastor. Hey, everyone. Scott here. We're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsors. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart? It's amazing to me how many people are breathing air. They're going about their business and doing the things you're supposed to do. But if you really ask them, they know that on the inside, they are spiritually and emotionally and relationally dead. If we're not careful, all of us can experience that death. When what we need to do, even as the world around us is falling apart, we need to learn how to march when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. Join me each week on the March or Die show as we discuss that and so much more. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Calitrin is a weight loss supplement made from collagen protein and digestive enzymes. Calitrin is designed to assist the body in repairing and rebuilding lean muscle using top quality ingredients. The reason it contains collagen, which is the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the body, is because it decreases as we age. Because Calitrin rebuilds this critical protein, it promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. I tried it for a month, slept great, felt more energetic, and noticeably shed weight that was gained over the holidays. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. Here are some customer testimonials. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calitrin. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. And Diane not only lost weight, but found relief from arthritis. This week, you can take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is extremely easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605 and you'll get a link to the special offer. Text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605. What did he make of his wartime experiences as an abolitionist, as a chaplain? I mean, in a way, this war achieves what he and others around him had been working for. But as a religious leader, how did he understand the experience? Well, as the war was winding down, well, he stayed, you know, he didn't just go home and immediately he was stayed in the army in Memphis and the, you know, the black soldiers were still a unit. They were eventually getting mustered out. But he realized that his job wasn't done, that emancipation was just one step. And he knew that quite 
intensely. He and some other white chaplains went off on a a trek into Arkansas and Mississippi just to see conditions. They nearly got ambushed. This is after the war is over. But they wanted to see how are blacks living. And it really shocked them. They absolutely knew that we aren't done yet. (laughs) We've only done one thing, which is to end legal slavery. But these sharecroppers are essentially still enslaved. He wanted to stay in Memphis. And he wrote to Carolyn in, in Minnesota saying, I'd really like to you know, bring you down here and we can start a church and a school down here. And we don't have her reply, except we know he didn't stay. So he went on back to Minnesota. But he wrote in his journal that you know, he was filled with a lot of regret in abandoning his men and Memphis. But he also knew it was a very dangerous place to be for people like him. So, But he took a lot away with him in terms of understanding he wasn't done yet. Well, So he went back to Minnesota, took up the life of the itinerant Methodist preacher, started writing a circuit again up in very white Minnesota, and back working with congregations. He got very depressed. And I think a lot of it is how all the uh, sort of petty church politics just was like completely like irrelevant at this point. But he had to deal with all the petty stuff that goes on in congregations. And so by when he was like 45, 46, his health was failing. He thought he was going to die. He was clearly depressed. And so he resigned as a, well, he put in for retirement at age 45 and just, I can't do this anymore. And he really thought he was going to die and he was done. And that's when his oldest son, Owen, came to him and said, you know, we've had a family meeting and I'm taking you to Texas (laughs) and to recover your health. And so began the next amazing chapter of this of his life and really the life of their whole family. Right. This stage here, it's amazing to see what he and Caroline are able to accomplish with starting a university or a school or whatever they term it. So can you tell me about this? What compels him to do this and how do they go about doing so? Well, so he and Owen go down to Dallas and with hardly any money in their pocket, no real idea what they're going to do next. But George goes to the annual Methodist convention or conference for the region and gets to know the bishop and is like, I'm willing to do anything. And But he meets up at this conference with three black pastors, three black Methodist pastors who he's hugely impressed by. And they talk to him, you know, they find out what he had done in the war and he was an abolitionist and they talk to him about starting a school. And so he convinces the Methodist bishop, Bishop Andrews, to let him try. So he and his principal partner was a black pastor named Jeremiah Webster. So it was the pastor of St. Paul Methodist Church in Dallas. And so they use a church building to start this school. And they call it a college, but it's really a school teaching a reading, writing, and arithmetic to all ages in the black community and takes off pretty quickly and they do pretty well. But not long after the 
Ku Klux Klan burned it down. And then in the really great act of defiance, the entire black community just rallies around it and rebuilds it in a single weekend. They just go get enough lumber and they just rebuild that building and just get that school going again. To me, that's a, he was just awestruck by that, but they got going again. And then it gets a little murky about what happened next. But what we think really did happen was the city of Dallas, you know, the Klan couldn't burn them out. So the city of Dallas found a way to kick them out. And that was the city of Dallas came up with a test for the teachers in the school that they couldn't possibly pass. So they all flunked this teacher test and then Dallas forced them to close the school. So George and his oldest son, Owen, relocate to Austin and then get it started once again. And eventually, Carolyn and their young daughter will come. But they got it going again in a Methodist church. That pastor's name was Charles Madison, another black pastor. And they got it started up in this black Methodist church. And then one of the stories I love around this is they they needed a bigger building than than a church building. And Austin was actually a very divided town in the Civil War between Confederate and Union sympathizers. And there was an Episcopal church. I'm an Episcopal priest, by the way. There was an Episcopal church in Austin, St. David's Episcopal Church. And it was established by pro-Union people in Texas and Their minister was Charles Gillette, and he ran afoul of his bishop when the bishop of Bishop Gray, the Episcopal bishop of Texas, ordered all of the Episcopal churches to do a prayer on Sunday for the victory of the Confederate armies. And Charles Gillette refused to do the prayer at his church in Austin. And one thing led to another, and he was forced out of his pulpit, and then his congregation told Gillette, you know, you've got to get out of here. They're going to kill you. So he left Texas in the middle of the war. Well, he had built a, a house as a, really as a seminary. It was a large house with classrooms and places to live. I mean, he was building a school, an Episcopal school. Well, it sat there abandoned during the war and then for years after. And Gillette's family, Gillette died in 1869. Gillette's family would not allow the Episcopal Church to use it because they felt quite betrayed, quite reasonably. And then along comes George Richardson and wanting to, to build a, a black college, and he got a hold of the Gillette family, and they said, great, you can use, you got it, you get that house. So that became the first place of the school. They eventually, they had a lot, I don't want to get too bogged down in it, but they had a lot of trouble getting the Methodist church to uh, come up with some money for it. But they eventually got a bequest from a Iowa abolitionist by the name of Samuel Huston, H-U-S-T-O-N, $10,000, an enormous amount of money. And that really got the college going. And they named it Samuel Huston College. It's now pronounced Samuel Houston. I've always sort of wondered if the Texans just thought it was a misspelling of Sam Houston, but it's really Huston. But we'll go along with the modern pronunciation that Samuel Houston College was what they founded. And eventually Caroline and Emma came down and Owen and his 
then wife Clara became a real family concerned. They all became teachers and ran the school. But one of the challenges they had was most of the blacks in the hill country were sharecroppers and they couldn't come to the school. So George went off on the circuit again and bringing books and lessons in his horse and buggy out into the hill country. And he called it his school in a wagon. So he went from black settlement to black settlement, bringing the school out to them. Can you describe what the function of the school was like? Because I'm amazed at stories of these schools that are established for emancipated slaves, where they're, in a sense, starting from nothing. They're helping bring education to people who were denied it completely for decades, centuries, adults who didn't have access to classes, literacy programs. And to go from nothing to something is just incredible work to build that kind of foundation. And I mean, that's, of course, not the case for everyone. Forcefulness of those who are able to unofficially get an education is admirable. And so I guess I shouldn't say they're starting from nothing. But can you describe what that process was like? Well, they taught primarily reading and writing. And to the Methodists, you know, the preachers, that was hugely important because they wanted them to be able to read the Bible. And one of the things George Richardson discovered about black pastors in Texas is a lot of them couldn't read, but they knew the Bible backwards and forwards because they had memorized it, but they never actually read it. And so he felt his first responsibility was to teach reading and writing to black pastors. Charles Madison couldn't read or write his black pastor partner in Austin, although what he describes as Madison's wife could read and write. So she ended up being a teacher and among her pupils was her pastor husband in the school. So you had a lot of of things like that going on. And people were at different levels. You know, it wasn't, you couldn't divide people into first, second, third, fourth grade kind of thing, or by age groups. It was just had to be, you know, what do you need to learn and what level are you? And they would just mix them all together. So Charles Madison might be in a third grade class with one of his children. So how they instructed, I'm not entirely clear exactly what a lesson plan would look like, but I'm assuming, a, you know, McGuffey's reader and things like that would be useful. And they would teach out of the Bible, you know, teach people how to read and One of the things I do know they would do is have pupils or scholars, as they call them, memorize speeches and, uh, you know, the Gettysburg Address and things like that. And they'd have these contests for reciting a famous speech or a soliloquy in a Shakespeare play, something like that. One of the, if I can flash forward beyond the Richardsons a little bit, the school closed a few times and it reopened. In the the early 1900s, you know, the early 20th century, and long after the Richardsons were gone, and the first black president was Reuben Lovingood, and he was a classically trained scholar and the first black president, and he insisted that everyone in the college learn Greek and or Latin, and the reason was there was some Confederates who said they would never believe that black people were anything other than subhuman because they couldn't possibly ever learn Greek or Latin. So Lemming Good 
said, okay, we're going to have everybody learn Greek and Latin. And that's what they taught at Samuel Houston College in the early 20th century, along with you know, math and English and everything else. So I always thought that was a, a really cool story. Before uh, talking about his larger legacy, what do the final years in his life look like? Well, eventually things happened and he left Austin and Caroline died. And so George became, uh, he just couldn't handle being in Austin any longer. So he went on up to the Texas Panhandle and became the chaplain to the Cowboys from the Panhandle. And he lived in a little boxy house he built for himself and started preaching in a saloon and had a great time. And eventually Owen showed up, arranged for George to be remarried and uh, to a woman who'd been the family nanny years earlier. And her name was Lily. And so he served the cowboys. I think he would have stayed there except Lily didn't like it. So they moved on to the West Coast. They came here near where I now live in Sacramento. They came up they settled up near Mount Shasta, which is a few hours north where I live, and in a town called Dunsmuir. It's a beautiful mountain town, and he served in a church there. He ended up going up into Oregon and then Idaho and serving different churches, you know, and then retired to Denver, which is where he lived out his life. His oldest daughter, Emma, took care of him in his final days, and he's buried in Denver. Scott here. One more break for a word from our sponsors. Something you know in the introduction of your book is that his deepest passions in life weren't seeing a battle won in the Civil War or seeing a slave release, but he saw his life mission as the salvation of African Americans from bondage, ignorance, poverty, sickness, and racial caste. So could you describe what that means and I really want to understand things from his perspective because it would be easy to paint him as, say, a early 20th century progressive of the with a belief in a social gospel, but that could perhaps place him in the wrong time. So, to understand him on his own terms, what did he see as his life mission with all of these different movements he got involved in? Well, I think first you have to understand George and Caroline as being primarily motivated by their religion. Politics is beside the point to them. In fact, I, we only have one record, not record, but you know, one description of him ever voting. I think he only ever voted once in his whole life, and that was for Abraham Lincoln, by the way, in a saloon. But his motivation and Carolyn's motivations were religious, and it goes back to their free will Baptist upbringing. And the idea there was that people have, they need to have the free will to accept or reject salvation through Jesus Christ. And by definition, if someone is enslaved, they have no free will. So to them, this was a mortal sin. This was a terrible sin to be enslaved because you've now taken away a person's ability to choose or not choose salvation. So it's not quite how we think of the social gospel today, 
you know, we nowadays we think of it more in terms of Jesus taught feed the hungry, visit the imprisoned, free the captives. You know, it's Luke and Isaiah that gets cited. But in the 19th century, it was far more about the doctrine of free will. And that's not to minimize the teachings of Jesus in the 19th century, but they were far more motivated by just the idea of salvation. And also keep in mind, in the 19th century, people die frequently and young, and death is all around. So this is an imperative. You may be dead this afternoon. So it's an urgency to make sure people can have that free will to choose salvation because you may be dead tomorrow. You don't take for granted that you're going to be alive for much longer. So that urgency was pushing this as well. So it is the religion and the doctrine that, that's motivating. But what's also interesting to me, and we see this in what Caroline wrote, is they broaden out from that as they worked among Black people in Black communities. They saw a lot more than just what could be encapsulated in a religious doctrine. And Caroline wrote an amazing essay in Texas about what she had seen. And I'd love to read some of that to you. She noted that Black people could not buy choice farmland. The whites wouldn't let them buy it. And she saw the sharecropping system. Here's what Caroline wrote about the sharecropping system as she witnessed it. Quote, this harsh and oppressive treatment has not been haphazard or isolated, but the result of a deep laid scheme. The plan seems to have been so to impoverish their laborers as to make them helplessly dependent, to check by tyrannical repression the normal impulse of advance to arrest the people through their elementary needs at a capriciously chosen point in their progress and to fix them in it. She saw racism as a system, not just as prejudice around people's skin color, but as a scheme, as a system, as a plan to permanently indenture a lower caste. And I find that, to me, that's just amazing that to see her write that. I mean, we see books now by Isabella Wilkerson and others about the racial caste system, bringing all that to light. But people in the 19th century saw this too. People like Caroline Richardson saw it clearly, what it was about. And so people like Caroline, you know, they were stretching beyond where they began with just religious doctrine. They were seeing an economic system based on racial caste to keep a caste low. So it's bigger and broader. Broadly speaking, what would you describe George and Caroline's legacy? They were abolitionists, educators. What would you say is their legacy with all the different hats that they wore? Well, I think their biggest legacy is the school, Houston Tillotson University, and how that school has made it through one challenge after another. It's 
thriving in Austin. Some amazing people have come through Houston Tillotson. There's some Jackie Robinson was the athletic director. Cecil Williams, the pastor of Glide Memorial in San Francisco, is an alum. It's a great school, and it's had some great moments in its history beyond the Richardsons. I mentioned Reuben Lovinggood. Well, in the 1940s, Howard Thurman gave a series of lectures that Samuel Houston College that he turned into a book called Jesus and the Disinherited. And that little book inspired Martin Luther King, and he carried that book with him everywhere he went. So, you know, that school, the legacy to me, the biggest legacy is the school and and all that has grown from it and all of the people who have come out of it and been influenced by it. But I also think there's a negative legacy. And the negative legacy is, how come my family never talked about all this? How come we buried it? And I explore that in my book, too. And it's an uncomfortable, unpleasant legacy, <laughs> to put it mildly. And it's as my family moved into the suburbanized white middle class, this kind of thing was socially embarrassing and worse. You know, I grew up in the white suburbs. I never really saw, a, I was never in a school with any black kids until high school. And that's also the legacy is, is how my family forgot all that. And it took me till midlife to even find out about it. Well, I love understanding the movements that happen in American history, not just as abstractions, but through stories like this of what did it look like on the ground of the Civil War, Reconstruction, and those who tried to bring out positive change. What did it actually look like to bring that about? Well, there's a lot more we couldn't get to, but for listeners who want to see the story in much greater detail, the name of your book is The Abolitionist Journal, Memories of an American Anti-Slavery Family. James, really appreciate you sharing all this with us, and I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it, and I really enjoyed our discussion. So thank you. That's all for today's episode. If you'd like to see show notes with sources, maps, links, anything else related to this episode, and all my other ones as well, go to parthenonpodcast.com. That's the name of the podcast network this show is a part of, along with James Early's Key Battles of American History, Steve Guerra's Beyond the Big Screen and History of the Papacy, and other great history shows as well. If you'd like to support the show, the two easiest ways to do so are to subscribe to it on the podcast player of your choice and leave a review. The second thing is to join the membership program for History Unplugged. If you do so, you'll get completely ad-free episodes for the entire back catalog, which is about 600 episodes and growing. And all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash unplugged. Thanks for listening and see you next time.